There is a heaviness here this morning. Some of you may not know her, but uh, a mother of three passed away early this morning in our church family. Uh, Connie Gilbert um, passed away around 3.30 this morning. And uh, we want to ask you to pray for uh, John, the husband, and three daughters, of course, Katie, Kimberly, and Riley. And uh, just lift them up. Two of the girls are in college at Wingate University, and then uh, one is a ninth grader uh, here in the county. And uh, we just ask you to lift them up in prayer. It's been a very difficult, I mean, it just came out of nowhere. Um, uh, Everybody's just shocked. And uh, she's one that would sing on our praise team at 930. And uh, I intercepted an email this morning that basically said, you know, uh, she went from singing at the praise team at Putnam to the praise team in heaven. And uh, that is so true, but it's still a very difficult loss. So we ask you to pray for that family. Have you ever noticed that many times we want something and even get something, yet we do not read the instructions on how it can better our lives? How many of you remember the VCRs? Do you remember VCR? Some of you. Do you remember the 12 that just would sit there and just blink? You, you remember that? I think even some of the earlier DVD players had the time, and it would just blink. And, and of course, we bought the, you know, that high-tech equipment there, and we bring it into our homes, and we want to get the most out of it, but we still let the clock blink 12. I don't know about you, but I'm not one of those who is very techy. I'm not one of those who uh, I get the latest, greatest, and I'm going to sit down, I'm going to learn every detail about it and how this works and how that works and get excited and call somebody and say, hey, I just bought this. Did you know this thing would do that? I'm not one of those guys. Matter of fact, the iPhone 6 just came out this past week, and, and, and I'm not going to make fun of any of you, but if you slept outside a store the night before, bless your heart, I tell you, you know we can all gonna, we're all going to get one eventually, right? But, but anyway, when I got mine, uh, just before this phone, it was a flip phone, and that was not that long ago. Matter of fact, Gary still has a flip phone, if you know Gary, our associate, but... <laughs> I, I upgraded. He still, he just got a brand new phone and he showed it to me the other day. It's, a, it's another flip phone. I'm like, <laughs> anyway, he may be on to something because when I got my smartphone, the only thing I knew how to do was call and receive texts. I'm just getting now where I can pretty good at texting. But what's interesting is I don't have a clue what us, all this thing can do. But yet my son tells me all the time, oh, it'll better your life. Get one. I mean, he's the one who taught me to get it in the first place. And, and, and it wasn't that long ago the other day. I, was, I said, man, that sure would be, a, I wish I had a camera. Man, that would be a beautiful picture. <laughs> and somebody said, well, you know your, your phone is a camera, don't you? Said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then I was somewhere and I didn't have a light and I needed to see something. And, and, and somebody really blew my mind. Did you know this thing has a flashlight on it? <laughs> I, I mean, I didn't have a clue. I've had this thing for two years, and, and I, I don't have a clue. I'm still learning what all this thing can do. And, and everybody talks about how it can better your life. Did you know that we treat God's Word the same way? We, we get just enough to operate some of the basic functions of our lives through, through His Word. But we don't sit down and read the instructions. We don't, we don't really know all that, that really entails about the walk that we have with him because we don't sit down and read the instructions. Look on the introduction there in your outline. The reality most of us find ourselves in these days is one of negativity, distrust, and hurt. But God's word tells us that we can live beyond these realities by living the realities of its instruction. 
And, and so what I want to do this morning is I want to show you how Peter is going to present to us the fact that we, there are certain things that, that the Bible gives us in way of instructions that can help us in our walk with him. Now, it's amazing to me how many people say they are followers of Jesus Christ, that they trust him with their lives, and yet they do not read, study, or know what his instructions are in his word. They, they don't know. Here in 1 Peter chapter 1, Paul identifies that those who follow Christ are pilgrims in this world. The word pilgrims there found in verse 1 of chapter 1 could also be translated aliens. I think many of us understand alien better than we understand pilgrim. Pilgrims is an old word. Alien is a new word. We can identify with that. But, but here's what we need to understand. When we came to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we became aliens of this world. Now, what if I were to ask, or what if you were asked to go to another planet and live there with its native people and unfamiliar surroundings? What if there was a book that described the people, the surroundings of the planet? Would you read it? Would you read it with interest? Or would you just kind of say, yeah, 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 yeah? No, I would think that if you were going to go live there in that new culture, there where, where all these expectations may be different than the last place, I would think that you would pick up that book and you would read it from cover to cover. And then you'd go back and you'd try to understand this and understand that. Listen, we're in the same situation as, as Christians here in this world. We are aliens of this world. This is a foreign place if we seek to live the, the life that God intends us to live. So when you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you became aliens to a foreign world. So, so with that in mind, let's look at some of the instructions that he gives us as we live this life we've been called to live. So look on your outline. Instructions on how to live beyond our present reality involve, number one, living a life that can be transformed. Living a life that can be transformed. Now, now there's a verse I'm getting ready to put, just getting ready to come up on the screen. And, and it's a verse that comes up a lot in our teaching ministry here at Putnam. And, and the reason it comes up a lot is because really a lot of the Christian life, the walk, the, the instruction that we have for this life is found in this one verse. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. Now, why would you want to do that? That you could prove or that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. That here's what it means when it says prove. That we can live in the realities God intends us to live in. You see, so many of us, and please understand, as, Paul, as Peter's writing this letter, he's writing to those who are being persecuted. Some of them, because they're Christians, will be executed. And he's writing to that audience. Today, many of us here in North America, uh, we call ourselves Christians. We, most of us are under no threat that we're going to lose our life as a result of making that declaration. But I will say this. There's many of us here today that probably do have heavy hearts. We're, we're dealing with situations that are beyond us. We're dealing with life and, and the complexity of, of life and its troubles and its suffering. And we find ourselves there. What he's saying here, he says that you may prove. He's talking about live beyond the realities of what we're in beyond the circumstances. You see, this verse implies that there's a process of sanctification, or excuse me, of transformation, moving us from the living in the reality of the world to living in the reality of God's will. That's what this verse is saying. So look on your outline. Living a life that can be transformed, it literally means being purified through obedience. Purified. 
When, when the scripture uses the, the, the phrase pure or purified, it means something that has not been flawed. Something that is there that, 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 that the corruption has not touched it. And so basically what he is saying for us to live in the realities of God, that that can be a, a reality in us, that, that, that we're living that reality, then we need to seek to live an uncorruptible, our un- uncorruptible life, that we seek to live a flawless life. Of course, we know that's difficult. But then he tells us it's only going to come by way of obedience. So look at verse 22 of chapter 1. He says, since you have purified your souls, how did you do it? In obeying the truth. So obeying the truth, truth is where instruction is found. Purifying your soul through this truth or through its instruction. When you do that, something happens in you. And by the way, all this is led by the Holy Spirit and what the Word of God is seeking to do in your life. As you do that, you become transformed. And here's what that literally means. On a practical level, it means this. That means someone who knows you well, after they've watched your life, after you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, here's what they would say. This is the commentary they would give on your life. Hey, you're not the same person you used to be. Something's different. That's transformation. And it comes only by way of purification. So living a life, secondly, can be transformed. It's a whole idea of being born again through redemption. We're born again through redemption. Look at verse 23. He says, having been born again. Now, Peter here is referring back to verses 18 and 19. When the process began, became a reality in your life. When you first trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, what you were doing were well, you were accepting his plan for your life. Now, this is not on your outline, but please understand this. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, salvation has come to your heart. Salvation comes to us in three ways. First of all, in the past, you've been saved eternally. You are saved eternally. When you made that decision to follow him, you started a journey throughout eternity with him. Second of all, in the present, you are living in the reality of that salvation. Now, the only way that happens is through this transforming thing. When we learn what God's truth has to say, when we look at his instruction and we begin to live it out, But then there's a third aspect to our salvation. In the future, you will live in the total reality of your salvation. That means when we see him face to face, when we leave this world of defilement. Now think about what we're trying to do. We're trying to live a life that is pure in a defiled world. How many of you know that it's defiled? Oh yeah, everything it seems to touch, everything pitched towards you is is, is to defile you. And so when you look at all this, you got to size it up and say, there is a transforming work going on in my life. It came by way of God's redemptive plan for me, but also that whole idea of being born again. Now, look on your outline. Instructions on how to live beyond our present reality involve not only living a life that can be transformed, but secondly, living, loving a people that can be family. Now, love is the hallmark of genuine Christian faith. Did you know that? The Bible has a lot to say about love. Jesus said that loving God and loving others are the greatest two commandments. Paul devoted a whole section of his writings to uh, to love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. John, the apostle John, goes so far as to say that if you do not love, that if you do not love, then you don't have a relationship with God. I mean, it's very clear. 
So Peter in verse 22 describes the love that we should have for others. Look at what it says, verse 22. Since you have been purified, since you, excuse me, since you have purified your souls and obeyed the truth, through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Now, look at how he describes this. He describes it in three ways. Look on your outline. First of all, he describes it as a sincere love, which literally means love without deceit. It's not deceptive. It's not something that is there to, to, to manipulate you. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 describes sincere love. Listen, listen how he describes it. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is a description of sincere love. But then there's a second description. There's something called brotherly love or friendship. This is a love that we would, this is where we get the idea of calling each other brothers and sisters in Christ. There's this other pastor here in the county. And I mean, he's a live wire. I mean, he is, he was, I mean, he's already, He's something else. And uh, I see him everywhere I go, it seems like. And, and, and I'll be at the Y, and he works out the Y, and he comes in, and he'll, he'll, right when he comes through the door, I can be on the other side of the room. He'll say, hey, brother pastor, how you doing? I'm sitting there like, please don't tell that people that. No, anyway, you know, I, I, occasionally, I'll be here at Yamato's, and, and we're over there, and, and all of a sudden, he'll walk in, hey, brother pastor. I mean, he, he, he takes that very seriously that we're brothers in Christ. And we should take that very seriously. Think about it. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We have, we have brothers. And it's a whole idea. It says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. Giving preference to one another. Now, there's also something called fervent love. And it speaks of enthusiastic, resolute love. And in 1 John chapter 4, the Bible says this. We love because God, he first loved us. That's the reason we love. So, so the love that we have for him and the love we have for others, where does it come from? It comes from him. Now think about this. The, the command to love one another deeply is both reasonable and possible. Yet, it may still not be our natural inclination to put others first before our own interests. Therefore, this divine command requires supernatural strength that can only come from God. Now, how many of you have ever heard this phrase? Well, the Bible says all I need to do is love them. I don't have to like them. Do you know that's not true? Because when you start looking at the types of love in Scripture and the reference points... We are called to like them. We may not like their actions. We may not like their attitude. We may not like any. Well, maybe we need like, anyway. We need to like them because they're in Christ, if anything. And so for some of us, to love someone enthusiastically, when it says to love resolutely, that means there's a steadfastness about it. That means it's solid. It will require many times a supernatural kind of love. Did you know that my wife this past week had to love me supernaturally. She did. That woman did not like me most of this past week. And to be honest with you, I didn't like her. Let me tell you why. 
We're remodeling some of our house. Basically, we're just replacing the carpet. That, put it this way. When your four-year-old grandson comes in and says, y'all need new carpet. It's time to get new carpet. Now, I can't tell. I don't, to this day, I don't know if that was him saying that or the story that Tina gave me that we need to change the carpet. But guess what? The carpet got changed, but it came at a price. We had the house tore all up. Tina was working. I said, well, while we got the, you know, before the carpet comes, let's, let's paint the walls. Let's do this. Let's do that. So the project expanded and expanded and expanded. And, and, and I wasn't gracious and I wasn't encouraging. And I'd come in, well, you missed a spot. Well, when you get hit with a paintbrush, that, that's tough. <laughs> no, no, but the thing is, the thing is, we went through some challenges this past week. And we had to supernaturally love each other. We didn't like each other. We just had to learn to supernaturally allow us to have a fondness for one another. But, but we hear this, that fervent love, that enthusiastic love, that resolute love. Look here. Instructions on how to live beyond our present reality involve, next, learning a word that can be trusted or leaning on a word that can be trusted. The Bible, listen, is not an outdated book. It is the living word of God. I can't tell you how many times people show up at my office and, and we'll be there and, and they, they've got a problem and they're hashing it out and they're telling me about their problem. And of course, what I like to do is take scripture and apply it to where I see that their, their issue is. And invariably, many times people will say this, isn't that kind of outdated? Isn't the words you're giving me, aren't they kind of out? Do they really speak to, and really what they're saying is, I'd just soon not do that. Really, that's what they're saying. Y'all, the Bible is not outdated. The Bible is a living word. Listen, it shows us what is true and how to live. It shows us how to get on the right track and how to stay on the right track. It, it corrects us when we turn away from God. And the reason it's living, the reason we can trust it is, first of all, it is an, incor an incorruptible word. An incorruptible word. God's word can be trusted and will never mislead us because it is perfection. God's word is perfection. It's, and, and by the way, many times people try to defile God's word. Matter of fact, um, we, we've been doing a study on Wednesday nights, uh, kind of going through the New Testament. And as I was preparing for the study, the big, big prospects of what the New Testament was trying to communicate, we see not only a communication of God's love and how it needs to play out and the way Jesus loved, but do you realize that there's another big theme that sits there in the Old Testament, especially in the New Testament, especially in the epistles? And here's, here it is. Stay away from heresy. Stay away from people who take the word of God and corrupt it. Stay away from people who take the word of God and lean it to their own understanding in a way that benefits them in a dishonest way, in a manipulative way. And by the way, that's going on everywhere right now. You do know that, right? And so that's a theme that you see there. But the word itself is incorruptible. Look at verse 23. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible seed. That's what was planted in us. The Bible also says in Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God is pure. It's undefiled. Second of all, God's word is an invincible word. In, in, in Luke chapter 21, Jesus said this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. 
Everything you see, everything that appears to be your reality, all the things you're dealing with, your, the, the circumstances of life, the sufferings you may be going through, the things that you put your trust in that shouldn't be trusted in, all that's going to be removed. But there's one thing that's going to stand forever. What is it? God's Word. It's going to stand forever. Next, we learn in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, For the, the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, when you go back to the first century and you're sitting there and you're trying to look at some, a way to, to, to look at this the, as it relates to, to armor or whatever you want to look at as far as that goes, here's another way of saying it in 21st century. The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper or more powerful than any nuclear bomb out there. <laughs> it's very powerful. See, the Bible, listen to this, still stands even though it has been attacked by all disciplines of study, by ruthless dictators, by religious institutions. It's been attacked by them all, and it still comes out on the other end invincible. You see, many heresies have risen up against the true meaning, and yet it stands today. Look at verse 23. Here's how we know this. He says, having been born again, not of incorruptible seed, but, uh, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible incorruptible though excuse me through the word of God which lives and abides forever and then Peter quotes here in verse 24 Isaiah 40 because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass the grass withers and its flowers uh, falls away but the word of God endures forever now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you he's saying this invincible incorruptible word that is the word that you believed that's what was preached to you that's what your trust is found in and he's saying stick with that so God's word is permanent and enduring and will never decay nor be destroyed next look on your outline Instructions on how to live beyond our present reality involve leaving an attitude that can be destructive. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, therefore. The word therefore, I've told you many times. It means I'm getting ready to say something in light of all this other stuff that's been said. In light of how great your salvation is, and in light of the fact you need to, to love each other fervently and passionately, a, a brotherly love, a, a fond attraction, all those things need to be in place. Therefore, in light of all that, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. The phrase laying aside in verse 1 is a command. And here's what it implies. It, Im it implies something that one per a person needs to do so that something else can take place. So, so again, get the picture. It, it's a picture of something that needs to be done that something else can come and be fruitful. That's really what it literally means. Now, it, it would be like planting a garden. Now, most of us... I'm putting my in the category with you. Most of us are young. Well, a lot of you out there are young. I am getting old. Let's just admit it. It hurts. But anyway, some of you have gardens. Some of you love to have a garden. Now, if, if you were told, okay, I need, you need to go plant a garden. If you walked out there and you saw just this hard clay sitting there, do you realize there would need to be some preparation done to have a fruitful garden? 
Did you know that? What would you need to do? Well, you'd need to go in there. You'd need to pull up the weeds. you need to go in there and break up the hard ground. you need to t- uh, till it up. Maybe you need to throw some fertilizer in there. you got to prepare everything. And then and only then can you begin to start the process of having a garden. All the things that go into it before the process of having the garden itself is the things that need to be laid aside. And that's the terminology that he's using here in verse, verse 1. The five sins listed in verse 1 are all relational sins. The aim of these sins, listen, is to do harm to others, which is the opposite of the love mentioned back in verse 22. Okay, so he's saying, okay, go back to verse 22. Let your love be this way. Stay away from these things in verse 1, these sins here. So let's look at those sins. First of all, the, uh, the word malice. He uses a description called malice. And it means inflicting pain and harm with ill intent. It, it literally means just being mean. How many of you, don't raise your hand, but I, they might be sitting beside you and I don't want to embarrass them, but how many of you know people that are just mean? I mean, they mean. I mean, anything you put toward just mean and ugliness comes out of them. Well, he's saying, don't be that way. Don't, don't be that way. It speaks, it's the opposite of godliness. It literally means stabbing someone in the back. Then there's a whole idea of deceit. It's meaning misleading to take advantage. And it speaks of misleading information about another person. It's where you run down another person to lift yourself up. And many insecure people do this. They try to push you, another person down or maybe you down. They can be elevated. And then he says hypocrisy. I mean, think about it. It's masking, the masking of, of inward evil. It's, it's like in the depths of who you are, there's malice, there's deception, there's manipulation, but you're going to put on a face that you're good. And, 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 and that's just not where it is. Number four, envy. Hoping for the downfall of others and the advancement of oneself. Someone said this, envy looks at what others others have and says, that's not fair, I deserve it. It says, I want what you have and I'll do whatever it takes to have it. That's envy. But then he ends with this other phrase, evil speaking. It literally means the harming of one's reputation. Again, running someone down to build someone up, to build yourself up. It's the whole idea of slandering them. Slandering them. So we are to lay aside these things so that we can grow in a sincere and fervent love for others. So these things laid aside and need prepared. Need to just get rid of those things that something else can take its place. So look on your outline. Instructions on how to live beyond our present reality. Longing for a diet that can be nourishing. Hold your place here in 1 Peter. Turn to 2 Timothy. Turn to your left a little ways. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, as you're turning, listen to this. The terminology here in these verses speak of nourishment that produces growth. Nourishment that produces growth. God's word is intended to nourish our souls. That's what it's intended to do. So let's look at this. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul is telling Timothy, verse 14. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation 
through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So what he's saying there is there, there's something that has been deposited in you that drew you to salvation. And then it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means you can count on it. You can trust it. It's not outdated. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man or the person of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Everything that's going to be expected of you, the instructions for, for that expectation can be found in the word of God. So what do we do? Look on your outline. Longing for a diet that can be nourishing, that produces growth. Now, spiritual growth is very simple because it's just like physical growth. It requires proper exercise and proper diet. I want you to listen to these four pictures of health. First of all, you have Mr. Bad Diet. Eats mostly fast food and no exercise. I mean, that, that just, that's not good. Every time you see them, they're in the drive-thru. <laughs> and every time you see them, they're not out exercising. Okay, so you got Mr. Bad Diet. Then number two, you got Mr. Couch Potato. His diet may be okay, but there's no exercise. Doesn't do any good to just lie on the couch, read your Bible all day without ever putting anything into practice. Now, we know people like that who they don't exercise. They eat the right thing. They bring it in. There's no way that they don't live it out. Number three, Mr. Work to the Bone. Works hard all day, spends much time at church in various Christian ministries, but no nourishment. Never spends any quiet time feeding on God's Word. I mean, they just work themselves to the bone. Never, never nourish themselves through God's Word. And then number four is Mr. Spiritually Fit. Peter is talking here about the need for proper exercise and proper diet in order to grow properly in our spiritual lives. He's saying it's a must. So what do we need to do to be spiritually healthy? Here's what we need to understand from these verses. We need to lay aside those things that are not healthy. Now, when it comes to physical health, get rid of the Snickers bars. Your stash. How many of you got a stash of candy laying everywhere? Anybody got out there? Yeah, yeah. Most of these are ladies raising their hand. They're sitting there like, yeah, chocolate. I mean, it's, it, it, isn't it funny how that works? I mean, a lot of women in my life, I'm not saying who have stashes, but anyway. Um, but, but it is. I mean, it, it, it's so funny to see that, that, that there's those stashes. But it, it'd be like laying aside those things that are unhealthy and nourishing our sin on, on things that are. Listen to this. All exercise involves discipline. Everything involves discipline, okay? Praying, reading, reflecting, and even serving. Let me tell you one thing that's missing from many people who call themselves Christians that, that probably wasn't missing so much generations ago. We never take time anymore to reflect. How many of you know that to be true? I mean, think about it. We have the internet now. Uh, we've gone from uh, two or three TV channels to a thousand how many of you noticed that? How many of you remember when the, I, I grew up in the Wilmington area. We had two channels when I was growing up. We did not have CBS. We were so deprived. No, no never mind. But anyway, I mean, we didn't have anything. I mean, if you didn't, you didn't like what was on, just got up and did something outside or whatever. But, but we have all these things to take up our attention. All these things. And for many Christians, let me just tell you this. We never leave time to reflect. 
Here's what many Christians do. They, they want to have a good devotional life. They believe it's important. They've heard it at church. You need to have that. So what they do is they read their chapter for the day. They read their devotional thought. They have their prayer. And many times our prayers, I think if we are honest, we admit this, is our wish list. And then we're done. Don't take any time to reflect. You know, it's funny. And, and I, I'm not bashing this, but a lot of times we say, hey, I'm praying for you. And I think many of us really mean that. I think we do. But I remember years ago when people would say this to me. Hey, I'm praying for you. And here's how I'm praying for you. And they would tell you how they're praying for you. And the only way they could tell you that is because they took time to reflect upon what was going on in your life and what they saw in God's word. And they were able to give you a word. And y'all, that meant a lot. I hardly hear that anymore. You hardly hear it anymore. You know why? Because we don't take the time to reflect, to get with God and say, okay, here's my situation, God. I'm, I'm reading your word. Speak to my heart. We don't take that time anymore. And do you know it, take, it's a discipline, it, it takes a discipline to do that, to just be quiet before the Lord? Look at, look at uh, turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2. I want you to look at verse 2. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow. NIV says it this way, that you may grow up in your salvation. That you can come into the full reality of what your, your salvation really encompasses. That you understand the instructions that have been given to you to live out the life God called you to live. He's saying, you crave, like a newborn babe, you crave the milk of the word. You get in there and you crave it. We must have a desperate hunger for the word of God like a nursing newborn. I remember my daughter when she was a baby. What was really amazing about her is today she's skinny. I mean, she's just a beautiful girl. and She's, she's just skinny as a rail. So, I mean, she, anyway. But back then, whew, it, it, I mean, this is how bad it was. Her eyes would open. Ah! She was hungry. You better put something in that mouth. And so it got so bad that we would almost sit there and we were like, you think she's waking up? I don't know, but let's go ahead and warm up the milk just in case. <laughs> I mean, that girl wanted to eat something when them eyes came open. She wanted it. She craved it. She was not going to be satisfied until it was there. That's the same terminology that we read here about how we should crave the word of God. Next, longing for a diet that can be nourishing also produces an appetite. Appetites, you know this, can be good or bad. Let me give you an example. One of my favorite things to eat in this world, according to what I read, is the worst thing you can ever put in your body. How many of you ever been to Outback? Cheese fries. Man, don't that sound good? Extra crispy with extra bacon. I went and did a little research on that. <laughs> and I wish I had not. I found out that is absolutely the worst thing you can put in your body. Did it, does it stop me from now? No, I still eat it. But I mean, it's the first thing I order. 
I mean, my family, the waiter will come up and, and I'll be sitting there. I say, and they'll repeat it. So all in unison, all of us sitting at the table with cheese fries, extra crispy with extra bacon. But you know something? As I've gotten older, did you know, you know what I've learned about food? Food turns on you. <laughs> when I was younger, I could eat anything. I didn't know what indigestion was. I remember the first time I got indigestion. I was like, what is this? <laughs> I remember when I had heartburn. I mean, you remember getting heartburn for the first time? I thought I was dying. I thought this is the end. And, and, and what's amazing as we get older, I mean, when I was younger, I could eat a candy bar and it would keep me going for another eight hours. Now my body's sitting there saying, uh-uh, this ain't going to work. Now I've got to pay attention to what I'm eating. Did you know, I, I used to never like fruits and vegetables. I'm having to develop a taste for fruits and vegetables now because my body's demanding it. And, and do you know what I've had to do? How many of you know people who like broccoli? Let me just tell you this. When I would watch people eat broccoli, I'd sit there and the gagging reflex would take place. <laughs> I would be sitting there going, I mean, it was, I love broccoli now. I do. We go over here with the pastors, sometimes Yamato's and Jonathan. and uh, Hey, you want my broccoli? Yeah, give me your broccoli. But you know what I had to do? I had to develop a taste for broccoli. I had to keep putting it in there. Because you know what I read? On, you know what I read? I read that it was really good for you. And I want to be able to exercise. And I want to be able to take care of myself. And I learned that to nourish my body, I need to get rid of the cheese fries, which, hmm. But I need to embrace, I need to embrace the broccoli. And so I needed to lay aside this in order that this over here, this good thing, can be brought into my life. And y'all, that's what this terminology is telling us. It produces an appetite. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is from the message. You're going to find that there will be times when people will have no stomach for solid teaching. Y'all, we're living in that day. Everybody wants to candy coat God's word. Everybody wants to say, well, and then it goes on, but we'll fill up on spiritual junk food, catchy opinions that tickle their fancy. They'll turn their back on truth and chase mirages. And boy, is that so true. They, they I mean, they're chasing everything, but they're not chasing the truth of God's word. So we need to have a taste for the right things, for the right doctrine. In Colossians 2.8, look here on the screen. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceptions according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the word, rather than according to Christ. But look what he says in verse 3 of chapter 2. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. You know what the terminology of verse 3 is all about? The thermic Terminology of verse 3 is this. I laid aside the cheese fries because, I mean, let's face it, they are so good going down. But when you leave there, does it not just hurt? I mean, you just feel bloated. It's like, oh, why did I eat that stuff? But boy, when you take the milk of God's word, when you take the broccoli, and you're putting it in there, it's not the most wonderful of taste, but but you're putting it in there, it just feels right. It just, it's almost like your body, I don't know about you, but my body's saying, yes! The same thing comes when we begin to nourish ourselves with the Word of God. Just doing the right thing, allowing Him to speak to us. So, you know what's right, you know what makes you feel healthy, you know what makes you feel good about where you are with God.
get to that point. So here's the application. Do you have an appetite for the dysfunction of this world or for the nourishment of God's love and his truth? It may hurt. It may step on your toes. It may take you back. But it's the right thing when God's word, when his truth speaks into your heart. So here's the question. Do you take time to reflect? Y'all, that's where the nourishment comes. I can read God's word. It can, it can nourish me. But I'm limiting it for what it can do when I don't reflect on it. Where are you this morning? Would you stand to your feet, please? Father, we just come to you right now. We thank you for this challenge this morning. We thank you for your word. And Father, I just pray if there's someone here today that doesn't know you as a Lord and Savior, I pray today will be the day to give the heart to you. Lord, if there's uh, those that are here today and they remember a time in their life, maybe they've known you for many years, but right now that relationship seems to be a little stale. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of appetite for your word or just spending time with you. Father, I just pray you bring them back to you today, Lord. Father, if there's someone here today, Lord, it feels like this is a church home you've asked them to be a part of, where they can come into this fellowship and we can be brothers and sisters and grow uh, in that appetite for you. Father, I just pray you'll lead them. Lord, we just pray you have your way in this invitation. Speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Good news, sing a hymn of invitation. Myself and the other pastors are here at the front. Just do what God's calling you to do in these moments.